Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. There's a rather wonderful progression in our texts this morning, a progression that builds towards the tension and interaction between Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees, his family and the masses. And I want to suggest that it's a movement of perspective, a movement from it's all about me and my agenda towards a movement about us and the divine desire for all of us. It's a metaphorical movement. It's a change in perspective. And so let's briefly join and imagine this movement as if that time frame in Samuel's day and our time frame have merged, maybe the Time Traveler's Church this morning. In Samuel, we notice that the prophet is getting old. We've appreciated his leadership, but his sons are not like the old man was. Besides, it's getting a little embarrassing to have a nation led by a religious guru. Some would say, a nut. We want a king like all the other countries. After all, this is 2018. A king like all the other nations. Something outside of us to make us feel respectable, like everyone else. And we want it so bad that we will sacrifice ourselves, our work, our children, our freedoms into a system that is outside of us and will tend to manipulate us. We want someone else to fight our external battles, perhaps to keep our internal battles at bay. And Samuel tentatively suggests, I believe, that the kingdom you seek is not out there, it's within you. But we're more about how we're seen by others, by the nations, rather than who we are in, in God. And so God gives them their king, and we know that that didn't always turn out that well. Then in the psalm today, ironically attributed to one of those kings, David, one of those kings who flipped back and forth between trusting God and making some pretty bad decisions. But in contrast, he talks about the unfailing love of the divine that increases our strength of soul. Bow down towards your holy temple. Isn't something outside of you, echoed in the words of Christ, the kingdom is within you. This is a looking inward, a bowing down in awe to a God who would actually dwell within your soul. This is inner work, not public work. And the temple is within you. It's not God's dwelling place in the temple, but the church at best is an altar in the world, the place where you look into the temple of your soul, the real dwelling place of God. And then in our Corinthians passage from Paul, Paul invites us to identify with the cosmic Christ, the Christ who was there long before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the Christ who was there in the beginning, the Christ who was part of the eternal trinity and always will be, to increase and invites us to increase 
that awareness and the gratitude for our lives of grace, and then invites us to extend that grace to everyone and everything. And this is a change of perspective. What can be seen is lived, is lived as significant, our lives, but they're temporary. What can't be seen is lived as ultimate and eternal. And so perhaps what can be seen now, our current lives, as significant as they may be, are only a symbol, a metaphor, a reflection of the eternal. In fact, Paul somewhat negatively calls this wonderful life of ours a slight momentary affliction. A slight momentary affliction. And says, so we don't lose heart. It's an invitation that no matter how bad things are or how good they are, that everything somehow belongs. That's hard to accept. Trust. One of my favorite stories is the movie Shadowlands reflecting C.S. Lewis's book, uh, uh, Surprised by Joy. And in his book, or in, and in the movie, C.S. Lewis's mother dies when he's a young lad around 10. And the loss is so great that he decides he will never love something that much again. Because to lose it is overwhelming. And so he goes through his academic life as this great thinker, writer of children's stories, academic works, and literary criticism, and speaks all over the world. But he never allowed himself to fall in love until Joy showed up. Joy was a divorcee from the US with a child, I think in actuality two children, sort of hiding out, getting away from it all in England. Because in the 50s in the US, if you were a woman of divorce, it was all your fault and you were very marginalized. And so she heard that in England there wasn't quite that same stigma and she went there on a three-month visa. And her son was totally intrigued with the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe and went to hear C.S. Lewis lecture about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe with his mother. And after, he went up to C.S. Lewis and said, Mr. Lewis, where, where's that wardrobe? And C.S. Lewis says, well, it's in my attic. Can I see it? And that led to an invitation to tea for this young lad and Joy. And in the movie, they portray it as these sparks are flying, but neither of them is going to admit it. And C.S. Lewis, after befriending her, finds out that she's only allowed to stay in England for three months. She has a three-month visa. And she's dreading going back. And so he says, well, why don't I marry you? It'll be a marriage of convenience. You can live in, New in uh, London, and I'll stay in Cambridge. And, uh, but that way, you'll be able to stay in the country. And see sheepishly agrees, and in the process of pursuing that, they can't help themselves, he falls in love. Probably in his mid-fifties. Suddenly, that which he had kept at bay all those years entered his reality. Within a year, Joy was diagnosed with cancer, and within another year, she died. And as she is sitting with him before, she, before her cancer was so bad that she couldn't get around. They were doing all kinds of things, and he was already mourning the loss, the intended, impending loss, because 
they knew it was not going to be cured. And she said to him at that time, the pleasure now will be part of the pain then. And later on, as he's sitting in the attic with his stepson, and they're talking and crying and trying to find some sense of peace, his only words are, the pain now was part of the pleasure then. I think this takes us to Mark. God's kingdom is the only kingdom that ultimately matters. Hold this life significantly but loosely, with a sacred, perhaps, indifference, even as we struggle with our conflicts between bad and good, joy and sorrow. And this is what Jesus models in this passage. If you read Mark in one sitting, you'll feel like it's a series of sound bites that are strung together with very little elaboration. Almost as if, I'll tell you the story, you make up your own message. It's anecdotal and narrative rather than ideological or philosophical like the Book of Romans. And one theory is that John Mark was with Peter in prison before Peter was executed, martyred, and is writing down all these little anecdotes quickly before Peter is gone, around 70 AD. We're not certain of this, but it fits somewhat with even reading it in English. And in some ways, it reads like the closest equivalent we have uh, to social media. A written collection of oral stories, little sound bites, presented one after the other. But in our text, Jesus is telling everyone that the antidote to the struggle between good and evil is not security, it's not predictability, it's not safety. He seemingly abandons everything that we value as cultures, including those values of his immediate family who thought he had lost his mind. He threw away security. He was a good middle-class boy who could have stayed in his father's business, but he chose insecurity. He threw away safety. He was more concerned with justice and mercy. He threw away what people thought. William Barclay says that he had shown himself utterly indifferent to the verdict of society. H.G. Wells' words says that for most of us, the voice of our neighbor is louder than the voice of God. What will people say is often the first thing we ask or think. And we get the idea, as do the family and the scribes and Pharisees, and the people, that Jesus is either too good to be true, or he's crazy. For the masses, his message has engaged them and given them a sense of hope and freedom, but it's based on them demanding, insisting, hoping he will change their immediate situation and make their material, temporal life better. For the scribes and Pharisees, he's a threat. The establishment often both church and state, don't want the masses to have too much hope. Too much hope invites change, and they resist significant change. It's why they're called the establishment. And at best, they offer only enough hope to pacify the fear that is necessary often for the establishment to sustain itself. And so for them, it's scary that Jesus is drawing huge crowds. Huge crowds are dangerous, and they make establishment fearful. 
They're okay if they're focused on sports, on concerts, on churches, on shopping malls, provided they stay within their walls, buying goods, entertaining themselves to distraction, but not focused on hopeful spiritual, let alone political change, and certainly not focused on confronting inner change. For his family, he's an embarrassment, because not only has he gone against the vocational norms of helping in the family business, but he's making all kinds of weird claims and telling stories and drawing a lot of attention. What will people think? He's just a kid from the lower middle class. We need to pull him away until he comes to his senses. And both of these extremes miss the heart of the message. Likely so does the crowd. The family says, just be a good boy. Stay in the system you were born into. The establishment says, don't rock the boat. We've been doing things this way for years, and it's working for us. And the crowd is saying, heal me. Please heal me. Give me some magic. Entertain me. Help me forget my painful little life. And all three miss what he is really saying. And this puts Jesus between a rock and a hard place. Family and friends think he's lost his mind. Scribes and Pharisees accuse him of being possessed. Crowds are intrigued, somewhat hopeful. He's putting into words some of their feelings. But for them, it's all about improve our situation. Especially provocative after this crazy man, John the Baptist, has just been running around. I remember when I was in Russia in 1993, and together with another gentleman doing a seminar for, for clergy who had been imprisoned pre-1992 under the Russian uh, imprisonment of anybody having anything to do with the message of the gospel outside of the organized, approved church. And they were, there was such a sense of freedom because now they could suddenly worship in a way that was free to them. But what we noticed as we spoke to these pastors is now that they were free, they wanted the same power as their, their oppressors had in terms of organizing and structuring and controlling the church of the future. The scribes and Pharisees in our passage are screaming fake news because it wasn't their news. And Jesus is saying, no, I've come to bring good news. The masses are identifying with the battle, but not the message. And all they wanted to see was some change to their lot in life and the Roman authorities who were over them. And when Jesus is asked to explain, he uses parables. These quirky little stories that when you listen to them, they mean something very different to you than they do to your neighbor. They are individual. They are inner. They're metaphorical truth, and that's usually about inner truth. Yes, I have family, he says, but family is a symbol and a metaphor of the universal family of God. Who are my mother and brothers? All of you. Yes, culture is important, but it is also a metaphor for the kingdom of heaven. That's why we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even marriage, friendship, brothers, sisters, all relationships are important, but they are also a metaphor of the interconnectedness of God with us 
as well as with the creation. So it's not that culture, family, parenting, marriage are not important, but hold them as a gift, as they are temporal and metaphorical of something that is eternal. We become the best culture we can to reflect the culture of heaven. We become the best parents or caregivers we can as a metaphor of the caregiving nature of God. Jesus isn't denying the value of family, but suggesting that it's just as, just as the family is important in our temporal reality, it is more important as a metaphor of the eternal family of all. <clears throat> so then what is this good news? I want to tell you a story of a pastor I spoke with from the United States a couple of weeks ago. He gave me permission to tell this story. There's a gentleman in his 60s. He's been a lifelong minister all his adult life, has planted a number of churches, and from the exterior would look very successful. However, he's worked in a church where he's often worked with inner city people, and so the problems have been huge. He is one of the most compassionate, gentle men I have met. He has a spouse who is a wonderful, creative, artistic lady, but has struggled all her life with drug and alcohol addiction. And so he has walked through this and sustained, and she has sustained and worked hard at this, and they have really struggled in their marriage. And as we're talking about this and its contrast in his emotional life to the success in ministry that he has and his desire to sustain it and be faithful, he says to me, when does it get better? He's been doing this for 40 years, faithfully serving. And now at this stage in his life, with not necessarily depression, but certainly an edge of melancholy, says, when does it get better? And then he tells me this story. Three weeks before that, his wife had invited him to a retreat, a retreat on the arts and spirituality. And that wasn't his thing, but he went for her. He didn't want to go and look and do a bunch of art or try and do some poetry or write some music. And he knew that the artist in the group was going to get him to draw pictures or paint something. And no, give me an engine to fix or something like that. But he went. And he said the artist, instead of asking them to paint something, said, I have 100 pictures I'm going to paste on the wall. And as you look at these pictures, I want you to pick one that shimmers or jumps out for you. And he said, hmm, I can do that. And as he was watching, suddenly this picture just captivated his mind. What was the picture, I asked? He said, it was a picture of a man in a well-dressed suit, sitting in a dark pit, and in front of him is a long ladder, and the ladder is going up to this beautiful light. And he said, that's me. So why don't you climb the ladder, I said. No, what is the ladder inviting of you, I said. Tried to keep it open-ended. It's inviting me to climb. What's keeping you from climbing it? He says, if it feels like I climb this ladder to light, that I will leave, have to leave a lot that I value behind. And so I'm torn. And the question that popped into my mind is, what if the ladder isn't for you? And he began to weep. Because if the ladder isn't for him, it was for the light to come to him. And that changes everything. 
That's a totally different perspective. He says, reminds me of that old song, Stairway to Heaven. We all know that one. She has a lot of gold and wants to buy a stairway to heaven where the stores are always open. The irony is that in heaven, gold has no value. They just pave the streets with it. Now, I'm not saying that you're in a destructive situation that you need to stay where you are and just grin and bear it. We need to make the decisions we need and feel called to make. But those are not vertical decisions. They're horizontal decisions. And wherever we decide, we need to see that ladder not as a ladder that we need to climb, but as a ladder for the light to break through to us. Jesus is saying that it's all about me. But not because I want to fix things, or because I have a big ego, or because I came from the Father. It's about incarnation, me coming to you. I'm not here to support the establishment. I'm not here to support exclusive tribal or family systems. And neither am I here to be a fixer or magician or revolutionary for everything that is wrong in the world. I'm joining you in this slight momentary affliction. Because life called life so that you can join me in the realm of eternal love, the Father's world. This is a kingdom that is already within you. And so I close with the words of Mr. Rogers, which sums up this text beautifully. We live in a world in which we need to share responsibility. It's easy to say, it's not my child, it's not my community, it's not my world, not my problem, but then there are those who see the need and respond. And I consider those people my heroes. This, I suggest, is what makes it a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Amen.